Hello, my name is Hyunsung Kang, and welcome to this podcast produced by the International Monetary Fund. When a country shifts from being a largely agrarian economy to one based on services or industry, it's said to have undergone structural change. That's what happened in countries like Japan, South Korea and more recently China, and it was the basis of their economic development. But many low-income countries have yet to undergo this process of structural transformation. So, if you're a leader of a country determined to undertake structural change and diversify your nation's economy, how do you go about doing this? Harvard Professor of Economics Danny Roderick has some ideas, and he discussed them with Jacob Fenston. But first he explained why structural change is so critical to development. I think all long-term sustained episodes of growth are underpinned by fundamental structural change. Of course, in countries you can get uh, growth spurts because of an improvement in terms of trade or a sudden burst of capital inflows, but those tend to peter out unless you have emergence and expansion of new industries and a movement of labor from traditional industries to um, uh, modern industries, which is the essence of structural change. Without those things happening, you're not going to get longer, long-term growth. Asia is, is an example of, of somewhere where uh, structural change has been very positive for growth. You're right that Asia has um, represent the archetypal uh, example of a traditional model of economic development, uh, which is that you start out with economies with a lot of surplus labor in very low productivity subsistence agriculture. Somehow uh, new industries start to emerge, mostly in urban areas, and poorly educated farmers become still equally uneducated, but uh, two or three times more productive factory workers. Uh, They're able to increase their incomes. Subsequently, they're able to send their children to school, and then you set into motion this this self-sustaining process of improvement in, in human capital skills and overall capabilities. Much of Asia, Japan being the earliest example of a, of a non-Western uh, uh, country to industrialize, followed by uh, South Korea and Taiwan since the 1960s, the experience of Southeast Asian countries, and of course, uh, most powerfully, uh, China since the late 1970s. I think in a way, a key to their experience has been their pragmatism. That is that they have uh, focused on achieving rapid industrialization, often outward-oriented, export-oriented industrialization. They've been very pragmatic and eclectic in the instruments uh, that they have used. And it's partly the capabilities of the state, partly the pragmatism, partly the willingness of the government in those countries to enter into collaborative argu- uh, uh, arrangements with the private sector. So a lot of things have, have colluded to make their strategy uh, more successful. And what would be some barriers to structural transformation in regions where this hasn't happened? Often in the less successful cases, um, such as uh, some African cases and, and Latin America, what we have seen is an obsessive attachment to a particular ideology. So that uh, in the 60s and 70s, many countries took import substitution to extremes. 
then in the 1990s, we had, a, we had an excessive attachment to the orthodoxy in the form of a Washington consensus, which basically said, forget about having any structural change policies, just get your fundamentals right, and then structural adjustment, uh, structural transformation follows automatically, which didn't quite work out. Um, uh, sort of pragmatism has worked a lot better uh, in Asia than, than these sort of flip-flops or, or changing fads of economic fashion. Sort of on a broader level, what would be some policy recommendations uh, in in terms of supporting diversification and and structural transformation? So I think you need to start with with diagnostics. One has to have a fairly good idea of of what is it that's blocking uh, structural transformation. Is it that labor market imperfections discouraging formal enterprises or existing enterprises to grow? Is it a credit constraint? Is it your financial markets that are performing poorly? Uh, Is it sort of extractive political institutions that nobody wants to invest in visible modern enterprises because they fear they're going to be expropriated one way or another by the government? So the first principle is, is, is that you need to do your homework and try to figure out which are the problems that affect you the most. What about countries in particular that, have, uh, that are rich in natural resources? Um, th- there seems to be a particular challenge for these countries in, in diversifying. Yes, th- I mean, those countries uh, come with a set of uh, advantages, which is that resource base essentially can make you rich much quicker but then also has uh, disadvantages, which is that um, when you are well endowed in a natural resource, uh, you suffer the so-called Dutch disease curse, uh, which is that non-resource sectors tend to be very unprofitable. So in oil exporting countries or copper exporting countries, natural natural resource exporting countries in general, producing sort of modern manufacturing uh, competitively ends up being much harder. There is really no good way out of this. Um, I think uh, the amount of of diversification that can be achieved is limited compared to some of the Asian countries that started out with being resource poor. So Saudi Arabia um, or Nigeria really cannot become the kind of manufacturing miracle that uh, China or South Korea turned out to be. I think for those countries, really the best... Uh, route is to develop the fundamental capabilities and skills and human capital that's going to improve broadly productivity in the services. So I think in some sense the the medium to long-term strategy for resource-rich countries has got to be to expand the productivity of their service sectors much more than, than I think manufacturing. That's a longer process, but they have the luxury of the cushion of natural resource wealth in the meantime. And that was Harvard University Professor of Political Economics, Danny Roderick. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can hear more on our newly launched podcast page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash IMF podcasts. <laughs>